Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The first time I saw Jimmy Trumbull, he was passed out in his Cadillac behind the Fat Cat Bar and Grill in Norwich. It was the summer of 1988. My rent was higher than Oil Can Boy's ERA, and my prospects were lower than Rich Gedman's batting average. That year, I was living in a Gales Ferry double-wide on Long Cove Avenue. In the summer afternoons, the lithium fumes from Norwich would hit the Viagra haze drifting in from Groton. The sunsets turned as blue as an old New London stripper. Back in those days, I had a little office on Railroad Street in Norwich. Mickey Minor, P.I., acquire the proof, discover the truth. The next afternoon, I was sitting there with my feet on the desk, thinking about going out for a frappe or a cabinet. And what was the difference? And then, we're closed. You, Mickey Minor. That's what it says on the door. Your slogan doesn't rhyme. Yeah? What rhymes with passed out in the caddy? Last out is a patty. What's your point? The last time I saw you, it looked like you were making the Gansett factory work overtime. I'm drawing a blank. Last night. Last night, I played bingo at the Pequot Hall. You take their wampum? I do okay. You got a job, Skippy? I work over at Thermos. You know, it keeps hot things hot and cold things cold. How does it know which to do? I don't follow you. You never will. Okay, I'll take your case, but I get a hundred bucks a day plus expenses. I don't have a case. I'm looking for the bathroom. Down the hall, but it's wicked filthy. He'll be back. They all come back. The misery washes down the Thames like a lost shad. But for now, it was just me and the Rose of New England. By any other name, she would smell better. But that's another story for another day. Right now, I got a date with some belly clams. And now he's still waiting for Benedict Arnold to pay his legal bill. Colin McEnroe. I helped the guy out, and what did I get for it? All right, so uh, yeah, you just heard our imagination uh, of what uh, sort of southeastern Connecticut noir would sound, but we don't really have to imagine it. We have the writers here who do it. Not always noir, but always southeastern Connecticut. You know, I started to think about this years ago when uh, reading um, I Know This Much Is True by Wally Lamb, one of our guests here today, and this his protagonist, Dominic Birdsey. And I was thinking, boy, I really know this guy. Like, you know, I know this guy. He's not me exactly, but I know him. I understand sort of the way he thinks what his points of reference are. Uh, I recognize all this. And I thought it, it really is sort of, you know, I mean, it really is just the way Southern California is for Raymond Chandler. This is a writing about a place where these these characters have things, have ways in which the, the place that they're from is evoked. And it's a very, and then you start thinking about it and you think it's, well, it's a really unusual place. Dude, there's a reason why writers would be attracted to it. In Wally's case, it may have been less volitional. I mean, he's from there. Uh, one of our other, uh, other guests, uh, John Manuel, Manuel uh, Andriot, came back there. Uh, and Stephen Dobbins, a uh, novelist, uh, I think, was drawn there by some of the things that we're going to talk about there today. Let me tell you a little bit more about all of them. Wally Lamb, you probably know, first of all, he's on our show a lot. He's a friend of the show. His novels do include I know this much is true, and she's come undone, and we are water. Uh, and John Manuel Andriot is a reporter and uh, author of Victory Deferred, uh, Wilhelmina Goes Wandering, and most recently, Tough Love, a Washington reporter finds resilience, ruin, and zombies in his other Connecticut hometown, and of course being uh, Norwich. Uh, they're 
both in studio with me. Joining us by phone is Stephen Dobbins. Uh, he's a poet of 13, uh, thir- author of 13 volumes of poetry, including Witcher's Journey and Velocities, uh, with a new volume out next fall. Uh, and he's here, although he's written many novels, he's here in particular to talk about uh, Is Fat Bob Dead Yet? Boy, is there ever a, that, that's a just, you know, perfect title for a new, new London novel, and that's what it is. If you haven't seen the cover yet, you'll never forget the cover. I promise you that. So they're all here. Uh, we're going to have this conversation. We're live on the air in the afternoon if you've got something to weigh in with. So, Wally, I'll start with you. Um, you know, Three Rivers uh, is, the, is the town where you've set so much of your fiction. It's pretty identifiably uh, Norwich. We even know what Three Rivers uh, they are. But what is this place? What, when you think about this place, what are, what are its defining characteristics? What gives it its kind of thrust in your fiction? Well, I think unlike, uh, say, the Gold Coast of Connecticut, we're more um, we're more liverwurst than pate, and um, you know we're a little feistier. Um, we are perhaps a little bit less focused on um, the material things. I think we're probably more influenced by Boston than New York, and so you know we uh, we we drop ahs and. Uh, you know, we tend to root for the Red Sox, although there are a, a number of Yankee fans. But it, but it really is. I mean, it's barely volitional. I mean, you you really do have to root for the Red Sox. I mean, well, you're going to be an outlier if you root for the Yankees. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Or in the or in the present state, uh, you root for the Mets. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's just this year. Um, and uh, John, you know, there's a way in which this area. Well, we should first of all let you tell a little bit of your story. So you are from there. You moved away. Um, you came back. There probably aren't that many um, returning pilgrims uh, who come back to Norwich. What what brought you back there? Well, I, I moved back to Norwich in 2007 after living in Washington, D.C. for almost 22 years and working there as a journalist, building my career. And uh, a, a personal situation in 2005 kind of opened my eyes to my life going forward. And I asked myself, what do I want? What do I want? I thought it might be nice to live in a smaller town. I was kind of tired of DC. And suddenly Norwich presented itself after lunch with the editor of the newspaper there. And it was all I could think about after our luncheon on the way back to DC is what would it be like to live there now as the man that I became uh, all these years later? And um, it was a very appealing picture. So it's it really is the place itself and all that it symbolizes. It's New England heritage, my family's roots there, five generations of my family have lived there. And uh, I, I describe Norwich as a mel- an American melting pot in a saucepan size. <laughs> uh, it, it's an incredibly interesting, diverse city for a city of 40,000 people. I feel uh, also as though that whole area – uh, the whole southeastern Connecticut uh, area that you guys all write about, it, it seems a little less touched by modernity uh, than, than every – I mean, everywhere you go these days, there's this kind of polypeptide sequence of CVS and Boston Market and, and Starbucks and, and, you know, I don't know, and Cumberland Farms, right? And it's not as though you don't have that in eastern Connecticut, although in Sterling or something, you probably don't. But um, – <laughs> <laughs> so you have like stocks and pillories and a butter churn or something. But um, <laughs> I just say that to provoke the people from Sterling. But there's sort of a way in which even if even if you've got all that stuff, underlying it is something a little bit more rigorous that's fighting back in a way that like West Hartford or wherever. It's, that's We've just given up. You know, I mean, whatever. You know, we're heterogenized exactly the way everybody else is. I feel like there, 
there's a couple of things going on, but there's a way in which that area is fighting back a little bit or refusing to accept it. I mean, does that make sense to you? Yeah, you know, I think part of it has to do with the Norwich Free Academy, which is is atypical and um, not like any other uh, high school in the country. It's got its own museum, mm. and because it's the only it's the only school in town, uh, secondary school, then um, you know it has a lot of very loyal alums, and so you know we're instead of having A's and B's and C's, NFA has fives and fours and threes and twos and ones and. Uh, Juniors are third year. Freshmen are greasies, and, uh, and uh, <laughs> sophomores are called lowers, and so forth. So, so that right there is a kind of a typical example of how we're different. Well, I think John Manuel Andriot. Another way that I think that it's different there is, I mean, you know, they talk about how in the Middle East people talk about the Crusades, like it happened yesterday, um, mm-hmm. and, and I think in Eastern Connecticut. Things like the American Revolution uh, and and the the life of Native Americans when Native Americans were really alive there. The, to me, that seems much more um, alive than than it is sort of west of the river. Absolutely, I th- I think that east of the river and and southeastern Connecticut and and Norwich in particular is very much connected to its New England heritage. And now in the in the fall. You know, when New Englanders are, are prone to saying you can take a New Englander out of New England, but you can't take New England out of that that person. And it's no more true than in the fall when, when New England is at its most spectacular. And in eastern Connecticut, it really is incredibly beautiful. Uh, charming country drives, steepled white churches. The, the really a sense of belonging to a place and a heritage is, is very powerful there. Um, let's add Stephen Dobbins to this conversation. Um, your uh, new novel, Stephen Bobbins, Dobbins, is, is Fat Bob Dead Yet. I mean, it begins with kind of a, a, a quick bird's eye tour uh, around New London. And it's clear that this isn't an arbitrarily chosen uh, city, that this novel is going to be uh, at least partly about a place. So what drew you to that place? Why New London? Why not someplace else? I like the contradictions of it, that uh, it was a town full of beautiful buildings and a town full of very ugly buildings, a town full of wealthy people and a town full of extremely poor people. They're often talking about renovation. We're going to build up Bank Street again. Yet the trains go through right very close to Bank Street, blowing 50, about 50 of them a day, blowing their horns over and over and over. I mean, I mean nobody could live there <laughs> unless you had you know, very big padded windows. And I like that. I, lived, I live in Westerly, which is just up the road about... 10, 15 miles. So you probably do call it a cabinet instead of a frap. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what I call it. I have to watch my weight, man. All right. So, um, and and there's, I I feel like in this novel, Stephen, you're going for some kind of combination uh, of noir and gothic, right? I mean, there's just, and and so there's got to be a way in which that, um, uh, the style of New London plays into that for you, that, that it is a place where strange things can happen and maybe happen kind of graphically. Does that sound reasonable? Mm-hmm. Say a little bit more about that. I mean, say, you know, once again, what, 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 what did you see there? I like the water. I like, the, as I say, I like the contradictions. 
I like the sense of promise and a sense of failure all at the same time. <laughs> and I thought I could put a book there that would also have contradictions, also have uh, people who are very different from others. I mean, most of the characters in the book have several names. You know, birth name, perhaps, and their real name, or their assumed name, or the name that the FBI gave them. Or... <laughs> and so it goes back and forth with, who are these people? One of the characters talks uses the word tridiculous. Yeah, I was going to come to tridiculous, yeah. What does that mean? It combines tragedy and the ridiculous. And the, the main symbol of it would be slipping on a banana. You know, the, the person <laughs> flies into the air, everyone laughs, and then he falls on his back, breaks it. Yeah. There are many things like that. And uh, the characters represent that in many ways. So, and the person who talks about or invents the word ridiculous is a scammer, really, making, making cold calls to people in the area for such groups as free, free beagles from nicotine addiction <laughs> and Prom Queens Anonymous, and even one that he, he keeps coming back to, although it doesn't get him much money, orphans from outer space. Well, so that that's a perfect segue for me. Um, I am going to do the unforgivable and quote uh, myself. But in 2002, the New York Times asked me to go and write about Foxwoods. And, and I sort of described what you see, you know, as you're kind of driving down and those spires uh, come up and how weird and Oz-like Foxwood looks dropped in the middle right. of all this. But I wrote, but then this is Eastern Connecticut, uh, where I've been assured by more than one apparently sober person that there's a space-time vortex in the vicinity of Sterling, that Satanists conjure up demons in the devil's hop yard in East Haddam, and that there is a giant ancient stone clown head somewhere out in the woods. The state archaeologist has found evidence of early Americans disturbing graves in southeastern Connecticut because they feared vampires were living in them. Uh, that's actually true, and Nick Bellantoni has discovered that. So, Wally, that's not so much there in your fiction. Your fiction is, I think, about normal people struggling with abnormal challenges, but I think lurking in the background is this sense, once again, we're not in Litchfield, you yeah, know? Right. Uh, and with this uh, new book that I'm just finishing up now, it does come out of the shadows. Uh, I never I never imagined that I would be telling a sort of ghost story. But uh, in um, I'll Take You There, which, Stephen, you might be interested in, uh, has a new London setting and specifically the old Guard Theater. And uh, we had the uh, – I had a premiere for – a movie that was made from one of my earlier novels at the Guard Theater, and I was told there by the managers that uh, that there had been ghost sightings there, and so I took that and ran with it, and uh, so I've got you know Eastern Connecticut meets um, you know paranormal uh, Eastern Connecticut. <laughs> and, and, and John Manuel, Manuel Andriot, you know, as we go a circle outside uh, of Norwich, and I know you're kind of a farm boy too, you, you very quickly realize that what is Eastern, the geographic signature of Eastern Connecticut is these somewhat dilapidated former factory towns, these post-industrial mill towns, surrounded by tremendous amounts of open space. Some of it's farmland, a lot of it's forest. The Patchogue State Forest uh, is big enough. It's uh, You could almost fit three cities of Hartford inside the Patchogue State Forest. It's that big. If it were a town, it would be one of the biggest towns in the state. So you kind of do feel as though, I've always felt anyway, if UFOs are going to come anywhere in Connecticut, they're going to come to eastern Connecticut, right? <laughs> I mean, there's there there's that funkiness, and there's sort of a sense that, you know, Connecticut doesn't have a lot of wild places, but there's wild places out there. Can you talk about them? Oh, absolutely. I, I had never 
talked to grown adults before who spoke passionately about the UFOs that they have seen uh, until I moved to back to eastern Connecticut. And more than one person, more than two people have told me and would probably swear in a stack of Bibles that they had really seen something really unusual uh, in the sky at night. Also, the ghost stories you mentioned, the, the vampires in Griswold. You know, when you have cemeteries, old graveyards that date back to the earliest years of the country, um, it's probably inevitable that there are stories and legends and wives' tales that, that attach to them. So it really is a place where anything is possible and there, there is real mystery in the ancientness of the place. There's a great book by a, a young writer named uh, Zachary Lamont, and it's called um, Weird Connecticut. Mm. And how interesting that it's almost all all about Eastern Connecticut. Mm. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, no. That's if you're going to do that Connecticut Curiosities book, um, that you're going to start there. You're going to start in Eastern Connecticut and work <laughs> west. There's other stuff in the west, but there's just a higher concentration in the east. And and John Manuel uh, Andriot, another thing about this is that you kind of can't get there from here, right? I mean, that's the old joke. But, you know, obviously for um, Stephen and Wally, sure, uh, 95 goes zooming by New London. But there really are places in eastern Connecticut that are not easily <laughs> accessible, you know, that there's some little winding road that, that brings you there, right? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, that's something that that I actually love about eastern Connecticut is is its – country charm, its New England-ness, that was one of the things that drew me back after so many years away, is that it it really is a distinct place. Uh, It's not like everything else. It's not a place of strip malls and and, uh, homogenization. Um, It really is a unique place unto itself, and I I find that really um, intriguing. And and Stephen Dobbins also, there's a a class thing. There's a lot of class things. We'll probably be coming back to this a few times in the conversation, too. But, you know, if you go down the Connecticut coast, you know, Old Saybrook is one thing, right? And and you go further and further east, and you get to New London, and suddenly you're in a very different place. You're still along the Connecticut shore, but you're obviously, first of all, in something resembling a city. But more than that, it's sort of suddenly not quite so waspy. It's more of a melting pot, right? Your novel is full uh, uh, of characters from, from all over the place, from Portugal. Right. And, you know, see some more about that, about what New London is that way. Just the, uh, just that wild contrast. I mean, it, it, and what bothers me about New London is the is the poverty of it, and uh, the contrast of the poverty with the money. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you have the Guard. The Guard. The Guard is a gorgeous theater, you know, a renovated, what probably nineteen twenties theater. But on Bank Street, there's a theater that's been closed since the early seventies, which is also. Uh, sort of an old opera house. I mean, it was, it was a vaudeville house that was built in 1922. It was where George Allen and Gracie Burns met, for instance. And uh, those two buildings, I mean, there's a scene in my book where, where one of the characters, two of the characters, are wandering through that, that theater at night with flashlights, and then, then bad things happen. <laughs> Not supernatural, just natural is bad enough. Well, you're writing a novel, mm. bad things have to happen. All right, we're going to uh, take a quick break. We're going to come back more uh, with more about the authorial voice of southeastern Connecticut after this. Boy's birthday. It's just a rumor that was spread around town by the women and children. 
Narragansett jingle is great. It'll be a big hit. I hope you agree. And don't forget to join us for Red Sox Baseball. Brought to you by Narragansett Lager Beer. So, Wally Lamb, that's it in a nutshell, right? I mean, it's Narragansett Beer, it's Kurt Gowdy, it's the Boston Red Sox. Yeah, uh, but I demand uh, equal uh, billing for Rheingold, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we're talking about sort of the uh, authorial voice uh, of southeastern Connecticut and, and, and sort of, you know, the way, in fact, in which writers uh, have made the place come alive. And with us, uh, Wally Lamb, uh, his books include I Know This Much Is True, She's Come Undone, I'll Take You There. John Manuel Andriot uh, is a reporter and author most recently of Tough Love. A Washington reporter finds resilience, ruin, and zombies in his other Connecticut hometown. Uh, Stephen Dobbins is joining us by phone. Uh, his latest novel is Is Fat Bob Dead? yet. So um, I want to talk a little bit uh, about um, the way in which history works there in this area. So, um, you know, Stephen Dobbins, one thing we haven't really talked about that much is the way in which this, like New London's a coastal town. It's a seagoing town. It's a seafaring town. Its story uh, is is that of the sea. And it's it's also inevitably Part of that, I think, is it's another way in which bad things happen, right? What does Benedict Arnold wind up burning? You know, I mean, he comes in. Bank Street. Uh, yeah, he burns Bank Street. Uh, you know, where does where does John Mason slaughter the Pequots? Well, he does it in Mystic. And there's a sense, I was reading in David Hackett Fisher's book, Albion Seed, how um, people uh, in that area, people who lived within 20 miles of the coast, uh, were told up to 1775, always have your guns with you because the British could come at any time could come by sea, uh, and, and that even for decades and decades after that, the tradition persisted of men leaving the church first to make sure the redcoats weren't outside. I mean, they, they, after a while, it was just a habit. They weren't worried about the redcoats anymore, but they did it. And that was all along the seacoast because you have a sense um, in a place like New London that you're exposed from that direction, right? I, I just, is that there in the psychology, do you think, uh, of the city or at least your fictional version of the city? I think that's still there. You know, obviously, there's, there are no whaling boats or no danger anymore. Maybe the uh, submarines across the river in Groton. Mm. But, it, you know, it's a town with a very complicated history and uh, an exciting history. You know, you go over to the, the fort in Groton where Benedict Arnold and other Brits were fighting off the, uh, the rebels. I mean, it's very striking, this, this place up on a hill with a obelisk and and these uh, dirt walls around it that's always there to remind you of of what that past is 
Um, and so there are all these reminders of the past, and I'm going to have um, our other two guests kind of walk us through a couple more. So, Wally, you know, you talked about Norwich Free Academy being sort of this almost kind of uh, Greco-Roman pillar of civilization, this kind of aperture that uh, could take you uh, almost uh, to any world of knowledge. But the other big looming tower for you in Norwich is the State Hospital, right? Yeah, Norwich State Hospital was a, a big influence on me when I was a kid. Only from the outside, I would uh, I would ride in the back of my parents' station wagon, and I would be very excited if I saw somebody on the sidewalk. Oh, that must be a crazy person! So it was a kind of a combination of fascination and dread for me. And you know, I didn't I didn't realize that when I grew up and and uh, started teaching and writing that I would sort of go back to the state hospital and investigate mental illness in many of my books. Um, and, and so this was um, – it's defunct now, we should say. Um, there are occasionally talks of – well, John Manuel, there's talks occasionally of turning it into a city park or something, right? Did they do, did they do that? Well, the, the state hospital property was sold by the state of Connecticut to the town of Preston where the land uh, of the property, most of the land, is located. I think 50, 40 or 50 acres of it are actually on the Norwich side of the, the town line. So there have been various plans and schemes to redevelop it. It's quite a uh, quite a spectacular location, directly across the Thames River from the Mohegan Sun Hotel. So the 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 buildings have been largely leveled at this point, and for the first time in my lifetime, you can actually see across the river, and at night you can see the the hotel tower at Mohegan Sun. So. Yeah, so the the hospital itself is a is a haunting haunted memory, but the place, the physical place, is is slowly being redeveloped. Um, there's sort of a lot of that down there. I mean, uh, there's also down in Waterford the Seaside Sanatorium, uh, which there uh, which is slated to become a state park. At one point, they were discussing various ways to handle this because it's also kind of a spooky place. This is a place where kids with tuberculosis were housed, and I mean, if you look at the interiors of it, it does it looks like Shutter Island or something or some really scary movie. <laughs> um, but they, at one point, they were talking about having it be I think they used the phrase a controlled ruin. They were just like going to let it kind of collapse and have that be part of the coolness. I think they decided not to do that. But, but Wally, until I read your essay about this whole area, I hadn't realized lithium was actually developed at. Uh, yeah, this was alluded to in the introduction, obviously. But that's, yeah. that's what I had uh, heard from uh, more than one person in the Ribikoff building I had heard. And it was um, lithium was developed by, first of all, giving it to monkeys and mm-hmm. then to men and women. And I heard stories about how uh, several of the therapists who lived on and around uh, the hospital had monkeys for pets. They would bring they would bring the lab monkeys home and uh, the mood stabilized lab monkeys. <laughs> well, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you would be able to tell that a monkey's mood had been stabilized, but but maybe it's more obvious uh, than I think it is. I want to talk about one more aspect of history. So, um, uh, you know, Stuart, uh, you mentioned uh, Stephen, excuse me. Uh, you mentioned uh, in your book, um, uh, you know, and and I think you just said it before too about uh, Benedict Arnold. But uh, John Manuel Andriot, Benedict Arnold is like a real Really big problem in Norwich, you know. There's, it's like a really big thing. And I just showed you guys some pictures here in the studio. I, I, I went in the 1980s. There's, there's a guy named William Stanley who both Wally and and you know uh, or knew who, who really felt like, well, 
if they can do it with witches in Salem, I mean, that's not a nice story either, you know? <laughs> but if they could turn that into a tourist attraction, why can't we take America's most famous traitor uh, and do something with this? Tell us a little bit more. I know you wrote several times about him, so tell us what you wrote about him. Well, I, I actually agreed with Bill Stanley that Norwich uh, has this strange sense of shame about Benedict Arnold, the fact that he... Uh, spent his boyhood in Norwich before he moved to New Haven. So there's been this 200-plus-year-old uh, shame and desire to sort of keep him as the, the city's dirty little secret. Um, we're very proud of Samuel Huntington, the other illustrious figure from the Re- Revolutionary War era, who was Connecticut's 18th governor, a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, I've I've argued that we have a hero and an and anti-hero, and that um, we need to get past our sense of shame that Benedict Arnold was from here and realize that other people don't feel that shame and other people would be very interested in coming and seeing where he grew up and hearing the story of his life and spending their money in our town to, to do that. I, I'm going to tell you something right now, okay, at the risk of... Um Upsetting you. Nobody has ever heard of Samuel Huntington. I mean, (laughs) nobody knows who that is. Everybody knows who Benedict Arnold is. Yeah, Wally. I bet I'm the only one in this room, though, who uh, has actually seen the B and the A carved into a a beam at the house where he lived. uh, When I was in high school, uh, I was friends with a guy who who lived there in that house, and he took me up into the attic and showed me the... uh, you know, his initials carved into the uh, one of the carrying beans. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's something. Well, first of all, let me grab a few calls here. Um, and we also, I think somebody tweeted us or emailed us and said, what about Willimantic? And it is true. It's a huge oversight on our part. I don't know if there is, like, uh, uh, somebody who's intrinsically a Willimantic novelist uh, or essayist. If, if so, we should have had that person on. Uh, but Willimantic is like its own thing, right? I mean, it really is. It, it, it's everything that we've just talked about in terms of downtrodden people, incredible mixings of different cultures. Uh, it's you know, it's got and it's got poverty bumping up against sort of professors and affluence. And I mean, it's it's everything that we just talked about, but then it's its own weird thing. You you know Willimantic fairly well. Right? I know it very well. I had an office there for about uh, twenty years, uh, and I lived. My family and I uh, began in Willimantic. And Three Rivers, the town that I write about, um, is you know is kind of a, a hybrid of Norwich and Willimantic. I kind of I kind of fudge it and and make it both places. Um, so let's um, we've got another New London writer calling in, Rand Cooper, a regular appearer on this show. Uh, hi, Rand. Hey, Colin. What have you got for us? Well, it's it's like a pitchfork to my heart not being able to be on this show as a, <laughs> as a New Londoner. But I want to recommend a novel. Maybe you guys talked about it. I missed the first part of the show, but a a forgotten novel, I think written in the 70s, about New London, called The Great Sunflower by Clifford Stone. Uh, Mm. Wally, do you know that book? I don't. No, it's new to me. So Clifford Stone was a a horticulturist and a a gardener at the Harkness Estate uh, in Waterford. And he, he might have been a writing fellow at Stanford or something, but sometime in the early 70s, he published this novel rather F. Scott Fitzgerald-like, um, sort of evocative in a certain lyrical way of The Great Gatsby, about New London, about being a person who leaves New London and comes back. And it begins with this great train ride coming back from New York and uh, his sense of thrill as he approaches New London. It's a coming-of-age story. It's about a friendship. It has a lot of psychological complexity, but it is centrally about 
a kind of romance of New London, looking back to, uh, since New London is a city whose greatness lies behind it, looking back to the greatness of New London and, and really experiencing New London as, um, as, a, as a place of, um, of poignancy and in some regard decline. And it's a lavishly romantic book. It got a lot of great reviews. He never really did anything again. He died a number of years ago. Um, so that's sort of one of those forgotten books, Clifford Stone, The Great Sunflower. Mm. Oh, thank you for that one. Stephen, yeah, Stephen, you're the one who just did a New London novel. Did you know, did you know about that one? I had no idea, no. All right. I'm going to look for it. Yeah. And he was a very, very popular figure around New London in the 70s and 80s, uh, affiliated with the hygienic, um, you know, was very much part of the New London scene and, and, and doesn't deserve to be forgotten. So remember him. All right. There was a, a Norwich author uh, a couple of decades before that, uh, Grace Savage. She wrote a book, uh, several books, but uh, I think her most uh, her most successful one was Parish about the uh, yes, uh, and, which is uh, like the worst movie ever. Yeah, but it's like uh-huh. the greatest worst movie ever. <laughs> I mean, it really is like the greatest it's worst movie in ever. the Peyton Place vein. Yeah, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it was about the tobacco fields. It's yes, about the tobacco right. fields uh, up in uh, up in the Windsor area. We've right. talked about it a couple of times uh-huh. here, uh, and. I always get corrected about this whenever I say it, but so there's always so Carl Malden in that who's like he's in the movie he's like the tobacco czar he's right. like you know the kingpin <laughs> uh, and and he's always sitting in his office and it it's like his office almost has to be in Bushnell Park the way the capital is you can see the state capital. <laughs> It's like, wow, his office is in Bristol Park. <laughs> Somebody always emails me and goes, no, no, you can tell actually where the office is and it's not. But uh, anyway, yeah, it's terrible. Uh, but it's, uh, I love that movie. All right, uh, Jeannie, from, uh, Jeannie from Waterbury. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. What's um, that? Yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to make a comment on one of your guests mm-hmm. uh, about the, the highway doesn't go very far. Mm-hmm. Somebody told me it, Connecticut was the ugliest state she had ever been to. And I said, that's because we don't put highways where we don't want you. (laughs) (laughs) That could actually be uh, like a little sign as you're entering the state. And this highway doesn't go where we don't want you. Yeah. Well, but welcome to Connecticut anyway. And that's a real Eastern Connecticut uh, yeah. attitude. That's right. Yeah. Get out of here. <laughs> don't bother us. This is Gales Ferry. Leave us alone. All right. We're going to take a quick break. What we haven't really talked about, of course, the big X factor. I mean, it's been alluded to a few times. But the casinos, in the middle of all this stuff, we drop the casinos. I got the funk. I got the funk. I'm a swan gang. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Dan Schultz and Sarah Flaherty. The part of Bill Curry was played by Eugene O'Neill. For show pages, articles, and oh no, pictures of us waving goodbye, goodbye sadly to the Faith Middleton Show staff, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. And now, back to Colin. Uh, we loved our Alice Obscura show. It's about going to w- wonderful places or about kind of it fits with today because one thing that this incredible travel site does is write about things that are in your backyard, things that I'm sure they've got uh, a Norwich entry, so, something. Uh, and 
Um, we're talking about the authorial literary voice of southeastern Connecticut. We're talking to uh, Stephen Dobbins. Uh, his book is Is Fat Bob, Bob Dead Yet? Uh, we're also talking to John, John Manuel Andriot. His book is Tough Love, uh, a series of his columns and essays uh, uh, about the greater Norwich area. And uh, Wally Lamb, I'll take you there. Um, when is the... Um, is Wishing and Hoping, do we have like a, a schedule for when we're going to see, get to see more of Wishing and Hoping? Yeah. In fact, it'll be, it's a lifetime movie, so I'm sure it'll, it'll recirculate on yeah. that channel. Um, I was, I was uh, a little disappointed, though, when the ratings came in, when uh, the movie premiered on Lifetime, and we were beaten in those ratings by Sex Sent Me to the ER. <laughs> well... <laughs> <laughs> Titles are important. Uh, you know, if you were up against "Is Fat Bob Dead Yet," you might have had problems too. Right, you know, it's just right. that titles. Titles can do that to you. Well, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, check your local listings because if you missed it last time around, it's going to be like you know all those like all the other sort of a wonderful life and stuff. It's going to be like one of these classic holiday things you watch it every year. Uh, <laughs> all right, so um, we haven't talked about the X Factor, which is the the two casinos. So you have this area that's sort of really maybe a little bit more stalled in its own older history than a lot of places would be. The Revolutionary War, John uh, John Trumbull and the office in Lebanon and things like that, and the burning of New London. And uh, these things are pretty fresh, you know, in the history of southeastern Connecticut and that sense of what the Native Americans were a long time ago. But they weren't around that much. Suddenly, uh, and Wally, this is sort of something that you said, growing up in, in Norwich, uh, in, in, in the 50s and 60s, you didn't really think of yourself as you weren't really from Indian country, right? No, nor did I know that a lot of my uh, fellow students uh, had Native American blood. It just never came up. In fact, it, it might have been a little bit hidden. Um, and then the irony is that, um, you know, the, the Cold War uh, kind of fizzles out and uh, electric boat starts, uh, you, know, um, you know, laying off, you know, thousands and uh, – and just as the the uh, the area is really on the ropes economically, uh, along come you know the Native Americans rise from the ashes and uh, and build these casinos that really economically save the area. Um. So Stephen Dobbins, uh, the, they're uh, they're there in your fiction too, but uh, one senses that you're not a huge fan of these casinos. They prey on the vulnerable, and uh, you look at the. The crime rates within a 50-mile radius of a casino, you know, robberies are up, uh, alcoholic driving and, and crashes are up, uh, there are more divorces, there are more all kinds of things just from the effect of the casino. Although from the point of a novelist, of course, you, you want – once again, you want places where things happen uh, and casinos are great for that. Uh, things are happening all the time there. Well, I had a friend that, that worked there with – and his job was to be in a little room with about four or five other husky guys. And when anything happened, they would be out there in a moment, you know, stopping a person who was fighting, or if there was a suicide, they'd clean up the blood, and be, everything would be cleaned up, and you know, the games would be playing again in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And that's what they do. They just waited for somebody's bad luck to happen. Yeah. And then they, sh- they were like rockets. They just shot in there and fixed it. I had somehow or other forgotten about this, but uh, so years ago I was writing this serialized novel, which I, I think you were following for a while, mm-hmm. Wally. Uh, and and so I, the Foxwoods had just kind of opened not too long before that, and I'd never been to Foxwoods, but I thought, well, I'm crazy if I don't, because as a writer, you kind of want to set something in a casino, right? You've got it all of a sudden, and and I went down there, and I, there were I remember several things really surprised me. One of them was I wanted there to be a scene where people had they had to steal something that was in a casino, and. So I was being walked around by Mickey Brown, who was the guy who was running the casino at the time. And I said, 
So I thought maybe it could happen at Christmas or something when there's nobody here. He goes, are you kidding me? <laughs> he goes, Christmas is like one of our most busy days of the year. And I thought, really? <laughs> That's so horrible and disturbing to me. Um, and the other thing was like I met – you meet these gamblers, you know, who they have all these systems and they have, you know – I met one guy who was like an air conditioning contractor who – what he did is he'd show up with – I think it was like $100 in – three of his pockets. And so when one pocket got empty, he'd go and have a couple of drinks and calm down. And then the other pocket would empty, he'd have a couple of drinks. And, and then if he lost the hundred that was in the third pocket, it was time to go home. That was his system. It was like to, That was his sort of off switch, like how he knew when to stop. <laughs> um, so uh, John Manuel, obviously this is something as a journalist, you just have to write about all the time. And as this was being debated uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, I mean, there was this sort of question, what's the, what's it going to do to the indigenous character of this region? What, you know, is is, is is will these towns be recognizable uh, by the time this is done? Is it going to look like Atlantic City? Is it going to look like Vegas? I mean, I think we know that didn't happen. But as somebody who looked at this at a pretty finely grained level, what, what do you think did happen? Well, yeah, I mean, since I moved back to Norwich, I, I have written about the casinos and the impact on, on the region um, because it hasn't all been sweetness and light, unfortunately. Uh, the casinos brought thousands of jobs, yes, but they brought low-paying low jobs for people with uh, not a lot of skills. And so after the folks who formerly worked at Electric Boat, um, who were unionized, skilled laborers, uh, when they were laid off by the thousands, tens of thousands in the early 90s, many of them applied for jobs at the casinos making substantially less money. And I... I've written about the impact of that on what what I describe as people's dignity. I, I think that's something that I've really seen change dramatically in Norwich in the 40 years since I was in high school at Norwich Free Academy is that back then, someone who was a pipe fitter at Electric Boat could afford <clears throat> a nice little house and a camper and a vacation, <clears throat> possibly even a stay-at-home wife. And... That is a certain kind of lifestyle, a certain sense of oneself and one's place in the world. And what I see now in Norwich instead is tremendous poverty, where 50% of the city's population is classified as working poor. And I see around me a city that has lost a sense of dignity. And I attribute that to the impact of the casinos, a very negative impact. But uh, there's a, but there's yeah, a right. more positive uh, aspect of that. Um, and I see it at uh, at the Norwich Free Academy because there are something like sixteen, seventeen native languages being spoken there, and so this there's this infusion of multiculturalism and uh, and multicultural kids, um, which I think is very healthy for the uh, you know for the region, and um, you know hopefully with assimilation, some of these people with crappy jobs can you know in the next generation can uh, you know as my own immigrant grandparents you know they were Italians who came over in the uh, you know the very first years of the 20th century and it's sort of that kind of uh, history repeating itself in in Norwich well I mean and that gets to I, I've got a call from Judy I want to get to but uh, so Judy hang in there but I mean this is a point also that it's a complicated one to make because okay so there's an image of Connecticut right and that image was sort of driven by uh, Bing Crosby movies and by the sheer existence of Catherine Hepburn and by a whole and by Samuel Huntington for all I know uh, of, <laughs> of that this is sort of basically um, a Protestant enclave right you know Christmas in Connecticut this is um, uh, uh, and that that what maybe Litchfield is or was 
was 50 years ago was kind of an American image for what Connecticut was. Um, and it's never really been true anywhere. But I do feel as though in Eastern Connecticut, and the writing you guys do, uh, all of you, I mean, Wally, your characters are, well, first of all, they're not Protestant. They're almost all Catholic, right? <laughs> and half of them are Italian. Yeah. They like Chinese food. <laughs> um, and, and the same with you, uh, Stephen, right? I mean, this this is, uh, if somebody is still clinging to the Catherine Hepburn uh, idea of Connecticut, which is located just a, you know, about uh, 25 miles down the road in uh, Fenwick and Old Saybrook, I mean, this this is a different Connecticut. That's certainly right. Oh, you might find a trace of it in Stonington. <clears throat> and and Mystic is certainly a, a thriving town with one of the best bookstores I've ever seen. But mm-hmm. mostly, you're right, it's it's poor. And it's you're not going to find Catherine Hepburn here. Right. You're not even going to find her poster. Right. Good good bookstores in either direction, uh, R.J. Julia and Madison and, and then Bank Street Books and uh, Mystic. Um, all right, Judy uh, from Cheshire, uh, you're on the line. Go ahead. Hi there, Colin. Enjoy your show. I'm a member. Um, but I'm just listening and wondering, uh, we were talking about the state hospital, which is no longer there, and the casinos, but what about the U.S. Postcard Academy in London, which is an awesome, great, uh, reputed, you know, academy college, and also the um, new Coast Guard, uh, United States Coast Guard Academy, which is going to be located there in New London at the train station for which the ground has already been, has already been um, broken. It's a, it's a great point, uh, and um, and actually, I think the Coast Guard. I just I was in the movie movie theater the other day, and there was a trailer for like a Coast Guard, a really exciting, spine tingling looking Coast Guard movie. So I feel like the Coast Guard is going to get sexy uh, all of a sudden. So um, that's a point worth making, um, and and. And Stephen, the point that she's making really does tie into what we were talking about before, too. This is uh, the overarching culture of New London, anyway, is a maritime culture. Right. I mean, it's not an area that has surrendered. There's still attempts to to do something to make it better. I mean, that, that's constantly happening. But it can be a sad place with unemployment and people... Walking the streets with no jobs, no place to go. Yeah, there's a great character in your book. Fidget is the this uh, very down and out uh, person who is not only an, a homeless alcoholic, but because of some kind of delirium, he actually thinks he has a tail. Um, uh, and um, uh, kind of maybe symbolic uh, of of that problem. Um, so, Jen, John Manuel Andreat, I just wanted just the one thing that we didn't really touch on, uh, and we've only got a minute or two left here. But I mean, your book begins with your decision to come back to this place. I mean, you really didn't need to come back to Norwich, mm-hmm. not necessarily. You'd gone through some major changes in your life. You'd been uh, diagnosed HIV positive, uh, but there was something calling you back, some kind of resolution you wanted to have. Could could you say something about that? Why why go back to this place, which compared to the other places you'd lived is a little bit of a backwater water. Sorry, yeah, Norwich. <laughs> no, you're right. And people in Norwich have asked me that. They've said, you know, most people want to leave here and not come back. And that's true. But I, I felt something uh, deeper in me calling me back, I think. And um, when I look back on the eight years now that I've lived back in Norwich, uh, you know, it's been uh, – financially uh, a struggle. Um, There aren't a lot of opportunities for someone with my very good Washington, D.C. resume. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've never regretted the decision to move back there. I've never said this was a mistake because I see myself connecting with sort of deeper 
parts of myself. You know, what does it mean to be a New Englander? What does it mean to have that heritage of strong Yankee resilience? I'm, I'm working on a new book now about building resilience in gay men. And, I, you know, I, I am reading Thoreau and connecting with uh, all this stuff that New England is about, self-reliance and independence and realizing those things are really powerful forces in, in making me who I am. We're going to have to stop there, but yeah. thank you, Wally Lamb. Thank you, John Manuel Andriot. Uh, thank you, Stephen Dobbins. And thanks to Betsy Kaplan. I've searched it with a fine-tooth comb And found that I only have one home, sweet home Connecticut always will be my home In the name of General Washington, who goes there? It is I, Thaddeus Wexford of Groton. How do we know you're not a British spy? I promise you I'm not. Uh, how do you pronounce this river? T-H-A-M-E-S. Thames. Grab him, boys. Come on, let's get